This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. The supplement we're doing for the Frederick Douglass book may seem like a non sequitur in that we are switching gears completely and leaving the abolition movement and shifting immediately to women's suffrage, but these stories overlap and they actually compete. It's an interesting twist and something that is distinctly American. Yes, and today we stand to pay homage to one of America's most eloquent feminist reformers and who made a name for herself writing speeches, articulating better than anyone in her generation what today seems almost passe, a woman's right to vote. It's something we don't even think about anymore. In fact, many today question the utility of voting altogether, but this was not the view of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And she articulated her view better than almost anyone. A vote is a voice, and the collection of these voices rule the day. It feels small, but it changes the world. And Stanton wanted every woman to have that voice. Frederick Douglass had a huge impact on women's suffrage, and that's our tie-in for the day. He used his political capital to support women's right to vote in an age when that was not only unpopular, but it actually could have jeopardized the abolition movement. So he supported women's suffrage before the Civil War and before African Americans were even free. Exactly. So in that vein, what I would like for us to do is to create the world of 1848, the world of Frederick Douglass and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and show us how these two ideas intersect. And then, of course, unfortunately, at one point, they parted ways. And why they parted ways? Giving honor to all those who did their part to help make America more closely resemble the ideals it has always espoused. 
And as I've stated uh, in our earlier podcast about Frederick Douglass, I love this reform era of the 1830s and the 1840s. And Stanton and Douglas are in the same part of the country. It's the burned over district of Western New York State. Out of that district came the abolitionist movement, the women's rights movement, several religious movements, a great awakening. Uh, So it's a hotbed of American reform and change. So where to begin? In order to arrive at 1848 in women's suffrage movement, we must back up to 1839 to a night at a party where Elizabeth Cady Stanton met a man named Frederick Douglass. Now, Stanton came from an extremely affluent family. She had received the best education that could be afforded to a woman at that time. Her father was a successful lawyer, and she knew a lot about law herself. She came from a family of 11 children. Unfortunately, all of the male children died, including Eleazar, who died at the age of 20. When that happened, her father was sent into utter despair to the point where he actually told her, Elizabeth, I wish you were a boy. All that, uh, sometimes for those of us who aren't historians, can get a little, because 1800s just sounds like a long time ago. Tell us exactly when was the Civil War and how many years before this and what would have been um, Stanton's reality as she would have understood the connection between uh, African Americans and, and and white Americans and abolition and all these things that you're talking about from somebody who, you know, that just seems like the past. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> as any high school student will tell you, if it happened yesterday, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> so, interestingly enough, the United States wins its independence in 1783. And by the time we get to 1839, what I like to point out is that this country is one generation old. So the revolutionary ideas have been ingrained in one generation like of Americans. Like grandfather, grandpa. Yes. like This is still a fairly new, fresh experiment going on in the United States at this time period. And, of course, as we're going to get into Jefferson's words later on, we're still fleshing out this idea of equality. But it had become a driving force in the culture at that time period. And we're going to mix it up with the the Quakers who, for religious and cultural reasons, become extremely uh, egalitarian. They're very much into equality in a way that many Americans were only paying lip service to. We're going to mix that up with religious fervor. We're going to mix it up with the abolitionist movement. And you're going to end up in Stanton's ballpark. So being an affluent family, she probably would have been more relatable to, like, the Downton Abbey types than, like... <laughs> look, I mean, honestly, like, well, she's not living in that world. She's definitely not living in Douglas's world. I would like to point out that uh, that American Western New York State uh, frontier wealth was not the same as Downton okay. Abbey. But, <laughs> but I get your point. Yeah, she was very much a distance from any social class and social circles that... Uh, Frederick Douglass had been operating in at that time period. So when their paths cross, it's an amazing moment when two separate distinct reform movements in United States history intersect and meet. And I think her personal family history that you were telling really brings her to the place where she's open minded. And she first of all, she's interacting with people like Frederick Douglass. Um, When her dad told her, I wish you were a boy. I mean, I don't know, obviously, what effect that would have had on her. I know what effect it would have had on me, and I can see what it did to her. And in some sense, Elizabeth tried to be the boy 
And maybe in some psychological sense, that's what spurred her onward. She excelled in school. She excelled in sports. She was interested in her father's law firm and practice. And had she been a boy, she'd been the very best of boys. But none of that could make her a boy. But what it did do is it made her very, very articulate. She was knowledgeable of the law, cognizant of how things were being done in man world, probably more than any other woman in her sphere. Anyway, in 1839, she not only met Frederick Douglass, but another abolitionist by the name of Henry Stanton, and they fell in love. They were apparently totally compatible, not just in personality, but intellectually. He considered her, and she was, her his intellectual equal, and they talked. Well, how compatible were they? Uh, this was further reinforced by their honeymoon. You know two people are compatible when they make this life choice. She and Henry, for their honeymoon, went to an anti-slavery convention in London. Well, that doesn't seem like the most romantic choice that most women would make, but it's what they did, and perhaps in the long run, it was for the best. Well, perhaps for the sake of humanity... Or, at least for women's suffrage, that was not the case. Instead, they attended an anti-slavery convention, which she was all about the anti-slavery movement, but what made her mad was the treatment of women at the convention. Here were these women ardently fighting for the right of African Americans, and these men were discriminating against them because of their sex. It made her so outraged, and it was to fuel a lot of her work for the rest of her life. One particular woman who she felt was particularly mistreated was this female preacher by the name of Lucretia Mott, a Quaker like you were talking about before. And this is important because in the Quaker church, men and women had always been treated equally for religious reasons from the beginning of the time of the church. To be honest, it was Mott who mentored Elizabeth. She told her she had the same right to think for herself as Martin Luther, John Calvin, or John Knox. And Elizabeth really embraced these ideas and was not the same. And a note I want to make about the Quakers, on top of their egalitarian streak that was so prevalent with them, many of them were frontier people, too. And the frontier had a way of stripping away all kinds of social conventions. And when you're out on the frontier fighting for survival— Male, female, doesn't matter. It's like we, right. we have to survive. And so that really uh, emphasizes the egalitarianism of the, of the Quaker movement. And uh, anyway, getting back to, to Stanton for a moment, uh, she did act like a respectable woman. She returned home and for seven years was a good wife. She enjoyed her husband's reform work, and she had seven kids and was truly a happy Bostonian. She had Irish servants. She had her causes. She had her parties. There was intellectual stimulation. And then Henry made a mistake. Uh-oh. <laughs> As men can do sometimes. Oh, no. He moved her to Seneca Falls. Now, a couple of years ago, we were fortunate enough to be part of a National Endowment for the Humanities, Semin Humanities Seminar, and we went to Seneca Falls. Now, that place, I can tell you from her firsthand experience, is out in the sticks. And that's where he took her. And she went out there away from the social life that she'd had and felt isolated. There was nothing for her to do. She felt in her bones the curse of being a woman. And she called it 
bondage. Interesting. And by the way, Seneca Falls is about 50 miles away from Rochester, where our Frederick Douglass is located during the same time period. And um, on July 13, 1848, Katie Stanton received an invitation to tea at the home of Jane and Richard Hunt, who were some wealthy Quakers. While there, she was reconnected with her old mentor, Lucretia Mott. I love the name Lucretia. And they plotted to do something that would forever change the landscape of America. Although, as great reform movements are prone to do, they had no idea at the time. And you have to wonder how much of this was just boredom, getting away from the seven kids, or, you know, the inspiration to change the world. Uh, Perhaps there's just the sense that she was in the right place at the right time, because for what they did actually seemed somewhat small. There were five women there, all married and all with children, which is interesting because the accusation was, well, these are just old single hags that want to write to vote because they can't get a man. I mean, that's really what people well, said. I don't doubt it. <laughs> but uh, they wanted to organize a women's convention. And get this, they were going to do it next week. <laughs> okay. So much for long-term planning. Yeah. Lucretia Mott was going to be the key speaker. And since it would not be dignified for a woman to emcee it, Uh, Mott's husband accepted the role to do that. Uh, They took out a teeny tiny ad, and then they had to write a manifesto. This fell to Stanton. There were 18 issues that they were going to take men to task over, and Stanton wanted to use the Declaration of Independence as a framework. She wanted to make the point that it says they, but was it really? So Elizabeth wrote it, uh, and it's not without controversy. They demanded property rights because at this time, a married woman couldn't have property. They wanted education. You couldn't go to school. Uh, And then they wanted the right to vote, which was the most controversial. In fact, Lucretia Mott, when um, Stanton proposed it, said, Why, Lizzie, thee will make us ridiculous. (laughs) Explain that. What is so ridiculous for women to have the right to vote? That For us in the 21st century, that doesn't even sound like a big thing. True. And once again, you know, we can't look at history from this vantage point backwards. We have to go back to 1840 and look at it as an evolution. And women were not enfranchised hardly anywhere around the world in the 1840s. And as a matter of fact, the Americans are going to be at the edge of enfranchising women. They're not the, the frontline leaders, but they're not far behind. So there is an evolution that's going on. Now, and there's also a strategic reason why they were concerned about women getting the right to vote. So in 1840, the census said there are 17 million residents in the United States. And of that 17 million, 2 million are slaves. Now, I don't know exact numbers, but <clears throat> let's just use a little easy math and common sense. If there's about half as many men as there are women, and usually there are slightly more women than men in any given population, that means that to enfranchise black men would be to add at best a million votes. And of course, there would be a lot of black males not of age that wouldn't even be able to vote. But to add women would mean that you would add over 8 million new voters. And that would probably mean that they would lose a majority. But here's what's interesting in American politics. Every time we change the voting demographic, it changes politics dramatically. So 
with the 15th Amendment, we're going to give freed slave males the right to vote. That will dramatically alter politics in the Reconstruction South for a while. Later on in uh, 1920, we're going to give women the right to vote. That will dramatically alter the political landscape. And then later on in 1971, we're going to lower the voting age from 21 to 18. Every time you add a group, it makes tremendous rippling changes all over the electorate. So that's exactly why uh, when, uh, giving women the right to vote is the largest group of women we've ever added to the voting electorate during this time period. That's why it matters. That's why it's significant. And uh, that's why it would have such an impact. So basically, the men didn't think they could control what the woman would vote, and all of a sudden they lose control. That's how I see it. Well, you could see it that way, <laughs> and you know it's interesting because in uh, current political dialogue, there are people that say, "Well, some women vote the way their husbands tell them to vote." And interestingly enough, men in the 1840s knew exactly my wife will not vote the way I tell her to vote, which is why I should not give her the vote. Well. It's interesting that most of the women uh, at this time would die before they would ever see uh, the right to vote. And, of course, Lucretia Mott uh, understood that. Um, Lizzie Stanton did not understand why even you would consider not adding this. Elizabeth Stanton got her way, and they went for it. Of course, they didn't know what would be the effect of their little convention and their little ad, but 300 people actually showed up. Now, this is a huge majority of the residents who live in this very rural area. But interestingly enough, one of the people who showed up was Frederick Douglass, and he was the only man of color there. I want to point out that Henry Stanton, sweet Henry, left town. He let Elizabeth do it, set it all up, but he couldn't, you know, he couldn't stay there and watch it himself. What I love about reform movements in U.S. history is that nobody's in charge. A groundswell of public attitude change occurs and waves of people begin to join. This is a classic case of that. How could they have known in a tiny town in upstate New York that 300 people would show up at this meeting. Resolution number nine was the right to vote, and that was the controversial one. And Frederick Douglass stepped up and supported Stanton on that. In fact, Stanton was losing the debate and the argument on whether or not they can include the right to vote in their declaration. They had pretty much agreed to cut out that right to vote, except Douglass stepped up and he said, and I quote, Right is of no sex. A woman is justly entitled to all we claim for man. A man ahead of his time. Incredible. So let's read both the Declaration of Independence and parallel it with the Declaration of Sentiments as Stanton intended us to understand this, this important feminist document. I'm going to give you a little bit of the philosophical history of the Declaration of Independence only because Stanton's Declaration of Sentiments is going to follow it so closely. And you have to ask the question, why would she copy the Declaration of Independence so closely? It's because 
we were a generation in the United States, the ideas of the Declaration had already become ingrained, and they were already the basis of our emerging political system during that time period. And so she's going to hitch her ideas to this idea of equality that was clearly established. And so that's going to explain why she's going to follow it so closely. So Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, was an Enlightenment thinker, scientific in mind, scientific method in attitude towards a lot of things. This document is going to clearly display the whole idea of social contract theory, that people join in groups, people create government for the sake of creating a better world for themselves. And if government fails to secure certain things for these people, people have the right to get rid of the government, start all over. These ideas were not original to him. They'd been around in England for a long time. It's contract law. And that's an interesting part about United States history. Contract law is so significant. The Constitution is a classic expression of contract law. So um, why does this happen? Well, interestingly enough, in Parliament, in Britain, they are struggling with constitutional monarchies. From 1215, from the time of the Magna Carta, up until this current time period, or up until the American Revolution in 1776, for that 500-year period, the British were working out this whole idea of who gets to participate in government, who gets to be a part of it, can we limit the power of a king? Again, 500 years. So those ideas got translated in the American colonies, and they germinate in the American colonies, and now they're one generation old. They're 70 years old, these ideas. That is going to be really uh, an important part of Jefferson's thinking and what she wants to include in the Declaration of Sentiments that she's trying to connect to. So the idea is this is a contract. I have a yes. part and then you have a part. And she's going to say the contract that we made, you're in breach. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and the way Jefferson does it in the Declaration of Independence, I like to term it as the world's best breakup letter. Well, she doesn't want to break up. She just wants an amendment, I guess. I don't know. Maybe she she's willing Im- to take it all the way. She's a radical woman. <laughs> she's wanting an improvement in she the status. She wants an improvement. So, anyway, having said that... Let's do it. Okay, let's go back and forth. And So, let's, let's read some sections. Now, I want to read, comment, and I want you to read her declaration of sentiments. So, we'll start with the first paragraph. And Jefferson said... When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to make the separation. She says... When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one portion of the family of man to assume among the people of the earth a position different from that which they have hitherto occupied, but one to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes that impel them to such a course. Okay. Jefferson's Declaration of Independence is often called Jefferson's Explanation. <laughs> Paragraph one is, we're about to tell you why we're going to do what we're going to do. Same thing Stanton is She included. agrees. Yes. I'm about to, um, as they say in the South, I'm fixing to tell you what's about to happen. 
Now, to look at Jefferson's second paragraph, he states very deeply ingrained and deeply held truths in the American political conscience. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights, a new term if you're King George III, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter it or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness." Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government." We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And to secure these rights, governments are instituted, driving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of those who suffer from it to refuse allegiance to it and to assist upon the institution of a new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of the women under this government. And such is now the necessity which constrains them to demand the equal station to which they are entitled. The History of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. The history of mankind is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations on the part of man toward woman, having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over her. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. And then in the Declaration of Independence, we have pages of all the crimes committed by 
the King of England to build their case for an independence movement. And she does the same thing. But I want to read them. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) These are the man offenses. Here we go. He has never permitted her to exercise her inalienable right to the elective franchise. He has compelled her to submit to laws in the formation of which she had no voice. He has withheld from her rights which are given to the most ignorant and degraded men, both native and foreigners. Having deprived her of this first right of a citizen, the elective franchise, thereby leaving her without representation in the halls of legislation, he has oppressed her on all sides. He has made her, if married, in the eye of the law, civilly dead. He has taken from her all right and property, even to the wages she earns. He has made her morally an irresponsible being, as she can commit many crimes with impunity, provided they be done in the presence of her husband. And the covenant of marriage, she is compelled to promise obedience to her husband, he becoming in all intents and purposes her master, the law giving him power to deprive her of her liberty and to administer chastisement. He has so framed the laws of divorce as to what shall be the proper cause of divorce in case of separation to whom the guardianship of the children shall be given as to be holy regardless of the happiness of women, the law in all cases going upon the false supposition of the primacy of man and giving all power into his hands. After depriving her of her rights as a married woman, if single and the owner of property, he has taxed her to support a government which recognizes her only when her property can be made profitable to it. He has monopolized near all the profitable employments, and from those she is permitted to follow, she receives but a scanty remuneration. He closes against her all the avenues to wealth and distinction which he considers most honorable to himself. As a teacher of theology, medicine, or law, she is not known. He has denied her the facilities for obtaining a thorough education, all colleges being closed against her. He allows her in church as well as state, but a subordinate position, claiming apostolic authority for her exclusion from the ministry, and with some exceptions from any public participation in the affairs of the church. He has created a false public sentiment by giving to the world a different code of morals for men and women, by which moral delinquencies which exclude women from society are not only tolerated, but are deemed of a little account in man. He has usurped the prerogative of Jehovah himself, claiming it as his right to assign for her a sphere of action which that belongs to her conscience and her God. He has endeavored in every way that he could to destroy her confidence in her own powers, to lessen her self-respect, and to make her willing to lead a dependent and abject life. Now in view of this entire disenfranchisement of one half of the people of this country, their social and religious degradation, in view of the unjust laws above mentioned, and because women do feel themselves aggrieved, oppressed, and fraudulently deprived of their most sacred rights, we insist that they have immediate admission to all the rights and privileges which belong to them as citizens of these United States. In entering upon the great works before us, we anticipate no small amount of misconception, misrepresentation, and ridicule, but we shall use every instrumentality within our power to effect our object— We shall employ agents, circulate tracts, petition the state and national legislators, and endeavor to enlist the pulpit and the press in our behalf. 
We hope this convention will be followed by a series of conventions embracing every part of the country, firmly relying upon the final triumph of the vote and the true we do this day affix our signatures to this declaration. There you go. That is a long list of usurpations. Usurpations is my new favorite word. I know. And I guess before I started reading about this, I didn't really have a clear understanding that when you get married, you lose all your property. You, I mean, you, there was just, you had no rights under the law at all. Zero. And she felt this as a propertyed woman. I, and I guess that's why her dad cried whenever his son died. Well, interestingly enough, property rights are going to be different from state to state. And I want to let everybody know that 1920 was not the first time that women were allowed to vote in national elections. If you go farther out west to western states in the, you know, in the, in the, in the last half of the 19th century, because of sparse populations, women were allowed to vote as a way of representing those states in Congress. So it's patchwork. The, this yeah, evolution yes. of women's right to vote is um, it's occurring in pieces all over the place. And finally, it'll unify under the 19th Amendment and, and guarantee the right to vote in every state. Now, how popular was this document? Well, 100 men and women signed it. And it was highly publicized, more than they could have ever anticipated. Although almost all the publicity was negative, the Philadelphia Public Ledger, in their um, unbiased journalistic reporting, stated, A woman is nobody. A wife is everything. The ladies of Philadelphia are resolved to maintain their rights as wives, bells, virgins, and mothers. That's so offensive. No one would dare say something like that today. <laughs> Another newspaper said equal rights would demoralize and degrade women from their high sphere and noble destiny. Hmm. Well, because of this horrid publicity, many of the signers were embarrassed and they begged to get their names off of that document. I guess they wanted to be the wife, belle, virgin, and mother. Oh, I don't want to lose that. <laughs> or well, their noble destiny, their this, high sphere. Well, you find out once you jump into the... Uh, political ring that the political ring is a very rough place well it did set off a series of conventions some small some large all over the country and it was through this publicity that stanton became friends with susan b anthony which of course is the better known of the women uh suffrage leaders um and she did a lot of the fighting uh from here on out you know stanton had all those kids and so they say that Stanton was a great, eloquent writer, but she was stuck in Seneca Falls. Uh, Anthony was a Quaker and a mover and a shaker, Oop, but, she, but she wasn't all that eloquent. So Stanton would write all these speeches, and Anthony would go around and give them. And there's a famous anecdote where you know Anthony's trying to get her to write a speech. She's got to have the speech for whatever day, and, and Stanton's like, I can't do it. I'm stirring pudding. So Anthony went to Seneca Falls, showed up at her house, and said, I'm here to stir the pudding. Get in there and and write. And this became their pattern. She spent a lot of time in the Stanton res- residences watching kids and cooking while Stanton would, would write off these speeches. In fact, and I'm, I may misquote him a little bit, but Henry said one time that Anthony, um, Susan B. Anthony stirred the pudding, Elizabeth stirred Anthony, and then Anthony went and stirred the world. <laughs> <laughs> 
there's a lot of stirring going on. I know. They're stirring it yes. up. <laughs> and I would like to say that on, on our National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship that we served, we got to go to, to the Stanton home and be in it, tour it. We got to be in the hall where the, the Seneca Falls Convention met, although it was burned down later on, but they've reconstructed it. Um, it's, so it's fascinating. And on that same trip, we also got to go to Frederick Douglass's grave and to the North Star Publication Office. And it's just fascinating. Once again, it all this is in the same area. So, but getting back to this, to make a long story short, African-American men did win the right to vote before women did. After the Civil War, there was an opportunity to pass the 15th Amendment, which would enfranchise all men, regardless of race. This made Stanton more mad than I could ever express with decent language. Decent language. She was so angry, and she directed a lot of her anger at Frederick Douglass because she thought that he had the power to force men into enfranchising women along with black men when they were going to create this universal approach to enfranchisement. She really believed that it could all be done at the same time. But what she didn't realize was that Frederick Douglass had been around a long time, and he was nothing if he was not pragmatic. And he knew how to wage war, he knew how to win war, and he knew what battles to fight and when. There's a very extremely famous public argument where Stanton releases so much rage at Douglass, and I'm sorry to say that to our modern ear, it's really racist beyond what we would ever forgive. And you do have to accept the times as for what they were and passions for what they were or you come down kind of hard on her <laughs> that's true and it was racist there's no way around it and there's no way to defend it but let's not judge her on the basis of what she can't see uh, she must be judged on what she can see and that is exactly how douglas who saw way farther ahead than she did chose to address her and he has a brilliant response to her racist tirade. So, Christy, do you want to read Stan's public address in New York City's Steinway Hall for us? I'll read the bad one, and you can read the... (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So she says, Shall American statesmen so amend their constitutions as to make their wives and mothers the political inferiors of unleathered and unwashed ditch diggers, boot blacks, butchers, and barbers fresh from the slave plantations of the South? That is dripping a little bit with some uh, disdain and elitism. Yes, at how can which you point, let them and not us? Yes, which we understand our argument. At which point, Douglas rose. He paid tribute to Stanton's years of work on civil rights for all, and he replied, When women, because they are women, are hunted down through the cities of New York and New Orleans, when they are dragged from their houses and hung from lampposts, when their children are torn from their arms and their brains dashed out upon the pavement, when they are objects of insult and rage at every turn, when they are in danger of having their homes burnt down, then they will have an urgency to obtain the ballot equal to our own. Well, he shut her down respectfully, but she got into the arena and she was matched. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. Neither Stanton nor Anthony really would live long enough to see the passing of what today we call the Susan B. Anthony Amendment in 1919 or the 19th Amendment. Now, notice it's the 19th Amendment because we had prohibition 
and then income tax, which was more important than women's. (laughs) (laughs) True. (laughs) But it was 72 years. I think about that. 72 years from the Seneca Falls Convention until 1920 on November 2, Charlotte Woodward Piercer, at the age of 91, the only signer alive from the original Seneca Falls Convention, went to the polls in Philadelphia and cast her ballot in a presidential election. What's interesting about that is the democracy that's emerging is one generation old when we get to Seneca Falls. From Seneca Falls to women getting the right to vote through the amendment process is another generation. So it takes two lifetimes to go from a new country to allowing women the right to vote. Now, uh, somehow I think Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, would have been watching from beyond the grave and nodding his head in agreement, as would all the reformers who come before, because at the end of the day, if we hold anything sacred in this country, we do hold everyone to be created equal by their creator. That's just not an easy thing to define. It's not an easy thing to explain. It's not an easy thing to live out. But it has been the American political pursuit from the beginning. And as a final tribute to both Stanton and Douglas, I really think it is fitting to close this episode, giving Douglas the last word. In April 1888, 40 years after Seneca Falls, in a speech before the International Council of Women in Washington, D.C., Douglas had the following thing to say about women's equality. I am amazed at how this man, who is now old, who was raised as a slave and a beast of burden, had the insight to be one of the most progressive men of his time. So, Christy, read for us his words at this convention. I believe no man, however gifted with thought and speech, can voice the wrongs and present the demands of women with the skill and effect, with the power and authority of woman herself. The man struck is the man to cry out. Woman knows and feels her wrongs as man cannot know and feel them. And she also knows as well as he can know what measures are needed to redress them. I grant all the claims at this point. She is her own best representative. We can neither speak for her, nor vote for her, nor act for her, nor be responsible for her. And the thing for men to do in the premises is just to get out of her way and give her the fullest opportunity to exercise all the powers inherent in her individual personality and allow her to do it as she herself shall elect to exercise them. Her right to be and to do is as full, complete, and perfect as the right of any man on earth. I say to her, as I say of the colored people, Give her fair play and hands off. That's why you have to be in love with this man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in 1888, there are not many people thinking like that, and there are certainly fewer people who could have put it into words like that. And it's a great way to close out our discussion of the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass and his connection with a super important reform movement that paralleled his life during that time period. The intersection between Stanton and Douglas is historically fascinating to me. If you've enjoyed being with us today, become our friend. Follow us on our How to Love Lit Podcast Facebook page. Keep up with us on our How to Love Lit Podcast Instagram page. 
go to howtolovelivepodcast.com. We have all kinds of great materials there, teaching materials that you can use in a classroom or just use for yourself. Also, tell a friend. Bring along your friends to be our friends. Peace out. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.